You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Now, here, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Like I was saying, uh, in this Advent series we've been in, uh, we are taking a look at a famous Christmas hymn called Hark the Hymn, one verse, and, and sort of unpacking it and tracing down its scriptural basis. These words that, that Charles Wesley wrote down, almost every single word is inspired by, or you can, you can see how it hyperlinks to scripture. So we're tracing those lyrics down into scripture and seeing the significance of this. So as, as we sing this song throughout the season of Advent, not only are we able to understand what it is we're singing, but we can understand why this is really good news, why we can sing with joy and gladness. And so today we're coming to the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, let, me, let me read you the text here. I think it's, it should be up behind me. Um, here are the lyrics. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So that's, that's sort of the, the verse. Now what we're gonna do here, um, as I've been studying this, this verse that Charles Wesley put together, it's very clear that his inspiration comes from scripture, but not only that, uh, you can see all kinds of fingerprints from the Westminster Confession of Faith 8.2 that unpacks the doctrine, the theology of the incarnation. And so what we see here in this passage is there's a lot of scripture tied up in here. Um, there's a lot of theology going on here, but what we're gonna do is use Galatians chapter four, verses four and five to be our rallying point for this verse. And, and so let me, let me read this to you. Galatians four, just read, but I, I wanna bring it to your mind to, so you can hear these, these lyrics and the passage next to each other. Galatians four, verse four says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what I want to do today, as I want to, I want to look at this verse, I want to look at Galatians 4 and hold up three things, break this into three parts for you. One, um, the backstory of the incarnation. So that this whole thing sort of orbits around the incarnation of Christ. So first part is talking about the backstory of the incarnation. Part two is talking about the event of the incarnation. And part three is unpacking the significance of why this matters. 
So if, if I had a, I didn't do this, but I should have. If we were to, to take Galatians 4 and verse 2 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing and put them side by side, one of the first things that we'll notice in similarities is the mention of time. Um, the, the third line of Hark the Herald Angels Sing says, late in time, behold him come. And verse 4 of Galatians 4 begins, but when the fullness of time had come. Now, this whole week I was... I was planning on, like, I'm going through my mind, what line is the most important line? What line in this verse needs to have the, the greatest emphasis here? And at first, and, and maybe you think this too, you look at a line like this where it says, um, late in time, behold him come, and you think it's sort of just a filler line. Like it's like Charles Wesley needed something to like fill up space in his stanza to be, to be able to have like a, a complete verse. But when we dig into this, we, we must realize that this line is a very crucial piece. Because what this line, late in time, behold him come, it's telling us that the story of the incarnation has a long backstory. And you cannot appreciate the incarnation without first understanding the backstory. So this backstory, it goes back. It goes way, way back. Back beyond Genesis 1-1, creation, back to eternity past. This, this begins, actually we see this in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The first two lines says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ, listen, the everlasting Lord. Wesley was pointing to the fact that God is eternal. Past, has he, since eternity past, God has existed. In the present, God is still the same as the past. In the future, God will carry on his existence and his nature intact through all eternity. And so the lyric points us here to the reality of, of the, the past and future realities of Christ's lordship, the eternal nature, the eternal nature of, of God. Now, the first place in the Bible where we see the lordship of God demonstrated, it's not that all of a sudden God went from not being Lord to now he is Lord. He's always been Lord. He's been the eternal Lord. But the first place in the Bible where we see that really demonstrated is in the creational account. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. When we see the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one yet in three persons, speak, let there be light, and light came forth. God speaks and he creates time, he creates space, and through the days of creation we see God filling time and space with creatures and, and the apex of creation being mankind, humans made in the image of God. Now the, the thing about this narrative is, is we see that God has appointed a special place in this creational story for man to live. We know it as the Garden of Eden. This, it, it, if you could envision the most robust, like if you think of the most robust garden you can ever think of, like flowers and fruit and, and beauty and just like, it would be overwhelming. The sights, the smells, the experience, the dirt in your toes, like it's just overwhelming. God created this special spot, a special dwelling place where man would live and God would be there with him. 
We see this in Genesis 1 and 2 where we're told that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, hand in hand, walking through the garden, a sharing of God's pleasure with his creation. And as God creates and we see his power, his authority, his lordship demonstrated, the fact that he speaks and creation now exists, we also see God's lordship in the fact that he gives a command. That God establishes a rule, an order for life in the Garden of Eden. And, And it was just one rule. One simple rule. God told Adam and Eve, listen, there's two trees here, two very special trees in the Garden of Eden. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, you can eat of any tree in this garden. You can have any one. You can fill your bellies full, except for this one tree. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gives them, he establishes this law in Eden. He gives them one rule. Now, if you know the story, you know how it goes, right? Adam and Eve failed at keeping the one rule. It was not long before the serpent entered into the garden, tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God's one rule, to break it, to take the fruit. They ate it, and they did, and what happened is they got evicted. Long story short, Genesis chapter 3, it ends with Adam and Eve being ushered out of the Garden of Eden, the, the place that God had, had handcrafted where his people would dwell with them, the, the, the bounty of God's blessings and the flourishing of humanity and creation. God had designed this place for them, and now they're, they're exiting the building No more walks with God in the cool of the day. Fellowship with God is broken. The ability to dwell with God like they did in Eden has has evaporated. Flourishing, the way that God designed the world to work so it would always grow and be abundant, now that, that is compromised. Flourishing, human flourishing is now opposed because sin has entered the world. And what sin Sin's primary objective is to lead people to death, right? That, that's Satan's objective, to, to lie, steal, kill, that Satan uses to oppose this flourishing. Now, before the eviction is totally done, God promises Adam and Eve. There, there's, there's a series of curses that God pronounces upon man, upon the woman, upon the serpent, And in the pronunciation of the curse upon the serpent, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. He says, listen, I will send a seed of the woman one day to crush the head of the serpent. God is speaking almost poetically here. What he's saying is, I will destroy the thing that is destroying you. I will come and crush sin and my enemy. Now, this is all happening in the first few verses, or first few chapters of Genesis, chapter, or verses of Genesis. And if you fast forward a little ways in the book of Genesis, you are introduced to a man named Abram, or who will later become known as Abraham. And as God has made this promise of this seed, God chooses this guy, Abram, Abraham, who's a pagan man. God said, listen, Abraham, I'm choosing you. 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to bless you so you can bless the world. God calls this pagan guy out of his pagan religion and calls him to himself, and he makes a promise that that has the echoes of the promise of Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to establish an everlasting covenant. That means a covenant that will forever remain, a promise of, of Abraham's people. Now, the interesting thing about this is Abraham is old, and his wife is old, and it's hard when you're 90 years old, to conceive a child. It's just a tough thing. But God, against the natural nature of human bodies, like in a supernatural way, God gives Abraham and his wife Sarah a child. This promise of, of the people, of the land, of the blessing is starting to come to fruition here. Where the the people will outnumber the sands on the beaches and the stars in the sky. That Abraham and his people would be a a mighty nation. They'd have a land. Later we're told a land flowing with milk and honey. Prosperous, beautiful. That you'd be a blessed people. I mean, all of us, do you hear the overtones of Eden going on here in, in, in the promise God made to Abraham? Now, if you fast forward a bit further here, I mean, we're going warp speed here through the Old Testament, Um, but fast forward further, we see God's people growing. He he has, in fact, multiplied Abraham's children, that they are a large nation, but this large nation is under the oppression of an evil man named Pharaoh in Egypt. And and Pharaoh is, is sort of a type for the serpent, the enemy. And, and in this moment of time, in this moment of the story, it, it's God's people who seem to be being crushed by the serpent is what it looks like. They're under his oppression. Yet God, again, he calls to himself a man named Moses to bring his people out of Egypt to the land that he promised to the forefather Abraham, the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey prosperous, glorious land. Now, it's on this journey out of, I mean, we can talk about the Passover and all that stuff, really mighty movement of God to, to bring his people out of, of Egypt, and there's a lot going on there. But, but in the wilderness, there are three really important scenes that occur in the book of Exodus that, that follow this, this sort of, this theme that we see from Eden to Abraham, now to Moses. Now, the first one that we see is in Exodus 20 where God gives Moses. So now going from one commandment in the Garden of Eden to now 10 commandments to enter into the promised land, God is laying out a roadmap of this is how you live in this land. This is how you keep this land. You keep these rules. You keep my commandments. You keep your land. You keep your blessing. If they break the law, they lose the land. They lose God's blessing. Now this, this, again, you see the connection here between Eden. God, God gave them a land, gave them one commandment. Now sin came into the world and it complicated things, so instead of one commandment, now we need 10. But God says, hey, I'm giving you a land, here's the commandment, here's how you keep it. Now the next scene that happens is in Exodus 25, where God tells Moses to build a tabernacle. Um, a tabernacle is a portable abode, a portable home, 
Um, and, and God gave Moses very specific instructions on how to build this thing. So Moses is told by God to create a home for him. Why? So God could dwell among his people. Now, do you see this again? Eden, the the overtones of Eden, where God could be with his people. Now, this is different than Eden because now in the tabernacle, there is a lot of red tape. You can't just go waltzing into the tabernacle and be like, oh, what up, God? Good to see you. Great spot. No, there's, there's ritual, there, there's cleansing, there's, there's purification, there's sacrifice that needs to be made in order to draw near to God. But God now has moved toward his people. And then the third important scene that happens in the wilderness is in Exodus 33, where God reveals his glory to Moses. Now, Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord. And God said, listen, Moses, I, I, can't, I can't show you fully my glory. If, if you look on my face, you'll die. Like that kind of glory. That, that, I mean, it's like the same reason you can't look at the sun or you can't stare down the sun. Your, your retinas will burn up. It's like that, only greater. God says, you can't even look, you can't look directly at my face for you will die but this is what I'll do. I'll show you my glory in part. I'll let you see the backside of me as I pass by. Now, this is interesting. So Moses goes up the hill. God's glory passes by. It's a crazy scene, absolutely crazy scene. And when Moses sees the glory of the Lord, something happens to him. The glory of the Lord reflects off of Moses. His face, this, is, this sounds, like a, it sounds like a fantasy novel or something, but the glory of the Lord is, is so powerful that, that it, it just permeates the face of Moses, and now he's radiating the glory. It's a reflection of God's glory, so much so that people said, I can't, Moses, we can't look at your face. You gotta cover it up. You gotta put a veil on because it's too much. It's too overwhelming. And, and this is just like, this is like, it's like, Secondhand smoke, basically. It's like we're not draw- drawing from the cigar directly, but we're, we're sensing some of the, the smell in the air. It's, it's affecting our lungs. You got to cut it out. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Sorry. But Moses had a cover up. It was too much glory. Too much glory. And so we see Moses had to put on a veil. People couldn't just look. It's not they couldn't even look at God. They couldn't even look at Moses who had looked at the back end of God. And so in this, in these scenes, we have, like, you start piecing them all together. What we see is God essentially laying out a path back to Eden. Now, not literally, like, like he can reverse the, t- the clock, but, but to, to restore what was had in Eden and actually elevate it to an even greater level, that God would, God would bring back that which was lost at the fall when sin entered in the world. God shows his glory. And if we fast forward even further into the story of Israel, we see very clearly that they are unable to keep the law. I mean, sure, going from one to 10, that's a bit of a jump. But, but like we're talking about like don't murder, like stuff that's relatively, like it shouldn't be that crazy. And what they're finding is they can't. They can't even keep the first commandment of honoring the Lord their God. 
they're given the law, but they are unable to keep the law. We, I mean, we sang a little bit about this. This is part of our story too. Like God commands us how to live. And so often we find ourselves breaking God's commandments, insisting on our own ways, like we know better than God, that we know the path to flourishing better than God does. But here's the thing, that the law that God gives us, it's not, it's not bad, it's not restrictive. It is the law of liberty. The law that actually, by putting the proper restraints on us, allows us to experience the fullness of life that God has intended for us to experience. Now, Israel has this bad path where they're veering off, or this bad cycle where they continually are veering off the path. And what God does is he sends prophets to call God's people back to faithfulness, to call them back to obey, obey the law. Now, we hear of this in, in Hebrews chapter one, verse one. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. Now, this message that prophets carried was always come back, return to the Lord your God, stop going after idols, stop going down the way of destruction, come back to God and find life in his name and blessing and every once in a while it would work. The prophets would have some kind of effect where nations would turn. I mean, the story of Jonah is a perfect example where he goes to Nineveh and he does a very poor presentation of the gospel. He's like, you guys better repent or this won't go well for you. You're gonna get, your city's gonna get burned up. And guess what? They repent, they turn. God sent Jonah as a prophet and, and, and people responded. A lot of times, not always positively, but there was times where there was effect. But even with every prophet that came and the good work that they did of calling the people back, it wasn't long before God's people would go back to breaking the law. It's like the proverb says, as a dog returns to his own vomit. Now, it's so easy for us to, to look at the story of Israel, to be, um, look at those idiots but not realize that this, their cycle of rebellion, of repentance, of coming back, that, that's the story of our lives. Like that, that's part of our, our that, that we are prone to veer, prone to wander, and God graciously calls us back, and it's not long before we veer off again. Now, what happens in the story of Israel that, that at times their rebellion, their, their rule breaking gets so bad that they lose their land, like, like in Eden. Like a, a stronger, bigger nation comes in and takes the land. And sometimes they would exile the people away, like Nehemiah and Ezra, the time where God sent uh, um, uh, Persia to come and take God's people off into to exile. But there's another point where this happens. In 63 BC, where God's people had been going through a dry spell of faithfulness. And the Roman government comes in and they take ownership. Now, the Romans let the Jews stay put mostly but the Jews, Israel is, is there living in what 
is their land, but they're there sort of as guests. It's not really theirs anymore. Now, it's in these seasons where they've rebelled, and God typically sends a prophet, and and instead of going through that typical cycle again, instead of sending a typical prophet, we're told that God sends his own son. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, Hebrews 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, if you you hear that and you go back to our original text in Galatians 4, where it talks about when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. All of this is wrapped up in the long, painful backstory, the latent time, the fullness of time is telling us of the the long saga of God's redemption. Now, God is not dilly-dallying when he takes his time. God, God is not just sitting there fiddling his thumbs waiting for people to get it figured out. God ordained this story to happen in this way. And he brings us to the year of the Lord, Anno Domini, the incarnation, where God puts on flesh and becomes man. As John 1, verse 14 says, the word became flesh. The word who was with God, who was God, who was in the beginning, dwelt among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And in this moment, it's called the incarnation. Now, the incarnation didn't come out of the blue, right? God wasn't like, hey, man, I'm bored, and I'm just looking for something to do. I think I'm just going to, like, hop down there and see what's going on. This, this, This moment in time was long anticipated. Prophets like Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, he said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Now, this is a totally unique birth. The fact that Isaiah calls it out, we see this in Luke chapters 1 and 2, talking about a virgin birth. We know that the Virgin Mary. Now, I don't know how this happens. But God does it. We're told that that this baby that the virgin would carry is is a special baby, a baby unlike any other because he was conceived in a special supernatural way. Luke 1 tells us the Holy Spirit came upon her, that the power of the Almighty was stirred up and Jesus was conceived. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, as we talk about the event of the incarnation, we have to address the doctrine of the incarnation because it's important for us to understand that, that it like God didn't, it's not like changing clothes where God had God clothes on and took them off and then put on human clothes. We're told that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God didn't put off his divinity. Instead, he took his divinity and and veiled it, placed it inside of human flesh. He took all of his divinity with him. It wasn't a 50-50 split, 50% God, 50% man. It was fully God, holy God, and holy man. And he put on flesh. Just as we sing, 
Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail incarnate deity. Now you might wonder, how can God do that? How can God, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how it works. What I do know is that Luke 137 tells us that nothing is impossible with God. That God can do it, and he did do it. There's a bit of mystery wrapped up here in the incarnation. But not only can God do it, it pleased God to do this. God was pleased to come as man unto men. Colossians 1.19 tells us, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As we sing, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, Jesus with us. Now, if you remember back to these important scenes with Moses in, in Exodus, you remember one, uh, in the incarnation we can see, one, the glory of God is revealed. John 1.18 tells us, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. He's speaking of Jesus Christ, the the word in flesh. The glory of God has become known in the incarnation. Not that the glory was hidden in the flesh or concealed, not to be seen, but rather the glory of God was embodied in the flesh in his son, Jesus Christ. The second thing we see if you make the connections between Exodus here and the incarnation, is we see God drawing near or dwelling among his people. This is what John 1.14 tells us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if it keeps going, it says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that, that line where it says he became flesh and dwelt, that that word can be translated dwelt as tabernacled among us. He made his abode among us. We see God drawing near to us in the incarnation. Now the last part, the part about the law, the commands, right? The the stuff that God says, hey, obey my law and you'll keep the land. Obey my law and blessings will come forth unto you. Now, this brings us to the significance of the incarnation. In fact, this is why the incarnation is a key fixture of Christianity. It's not, a, it's not this auxiliary piece that we can say, well, take it or leave it. Like, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if Jesus was born a virgin or not. It does. It, do, it matters a lot. In fact, if we remove the virgin birth from the gospel, there is no gospel. There is no good news. And some people might look at this and say, you know what, the whole Christian thing might be more believable if we just sort of like sidestep that part. It seems kind of embarrassing. No, but listen, this was God's sovereign will that this would happen. This is the story that God was writing that he would put on flesh and come through the womb of a virgin woman. Now, Galatians 4 Verses four and five tells us why. Now look look at this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now here's why. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
in the story of the Old Testament, blessing only comes through obedience. But the problem is we are rule breakers. It's not that the rules are bad, it's that there's something defective in us, that our hearts are bent towards our own way, our hearts are bent towards sin, which makes it really hard for us to tap into all of the blessing that God desires to give us through faithful living. And so in order to secure the blessing of God, what what needs to happen is we need to be people who operate, who are under the law, not just under the law, but we couldn't do it. But we couldn't do it. The the flourishing, the fruitfulness that God intended humanity to, to experience and to participate in just beyond our reach. So what happened was God put on flesh, was born of a woman, was born under the law so that he could fulfill the law. See, Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with the law but to fulfill the law. And we see this through the life of Jesus Christ. Every day of his life, every waking moment of his life, Jesus kept the law perfectly. There was no deviation. There was no gray area moments. God, Jesus, kept the law. He lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. He was tempted like us in every regard, yet he remained sinless. And we see his faithfulness to the Father that he would even live and obey if it meant dying on a cross. Now here's the thing. Jesus' perfect life earned him all of the fullness of God's blessing. His obedience would have brought forth all of his, instead of keeping that blessing for himself, what Jesus does, he swaps spots. He he takes our curse of sin and he takes it and it gets nailed to a tree. In fact, if you go back to Romans, um, Romans 8, it was part of our, our absolution today. That, that God condemned sin in the flesh. So even though Jesus lived the perfect life, he, he was willing to trade and go to death on a cross. And by this, Jesus not only secured our salvation, but he shares every single blessing with us. Galatians 4, 5 says, one of those blessings specifically points out that we might receive adoption, be part of God's family. Now, Ephesians 3, and and I, I can hardly, I can hardly, I can't, I, I can't not bring it up if I can find it. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10, listen to this. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
in him we have the riches of his grace, which he lavished, not, not, not sparingly, but lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Without the incarnation, none of this, none of this is ours. None of this is available, but because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for those who put their faith in him, it's all ours. Forgiveness of sin, newness of life, adoption, justification. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Not because we earned it, but because Christ earned it for us. Of his faithfulness, faith. Now, when you have true faith in Christ, when you believe that Jesus was, in fact, incarnate deity, that, that through his life, death, and resurrection, salvation, every spiritual blessing is ours, that, that is going to be demonstrated by your desire to obey Jesus, the everlasting Lord. Not to say, I'm going to go do my own thing. Um, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins, and I appreciate your guidance and insight, but I think I'm going to do my, do my own thing. No, a Christian, somebody who has genuine faith, looks at what Jesus has done and says, I'll do anything you say. Just as Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission to teach disciples to obey all he has commanded. And as this message of the gospel goes out, God is bringing to himself a people a people who have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of God himself so that we could be adopted, that we could be brought in, that we could be redeemed from our sin. A people who God promises to never, never to leave or forsake. Jesus says before he ascends into heaven, I'll be with you until the end of the age. He says, Jesus ascends in to the right hand of the Father, he sends his spirit. So now the spirit of God lives in the heart of every single Christian. God is tabernacling in us. Us corporately as the church, we are at the temple of God, but God in us is at work, was with us. And God's kingdom is not only ever expanding, but it will never end. In, in the early chapters of Luke's gospel, actually Luke 1, Mary is told by an angel um, at the news that she's going to conceive. The angel tells, him, tells her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord, listen to this, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The everlasting Lord. 
Now, Jesus will return. This is part of Advent. We look back to his first coming, the incarnation, and, and the second coming, we look ahead to where Jesus will return, not in a humble status of, of a baby born in a manger, but as the reigning and ruling king of the cosmos in all of his glory. And in that moment, our faith will become sight. We will be able to see the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ Jesus, and it will be fully known to us. And God will will take us to this dwelling place that he's been establishing where, where heaven and earth come together in the new heavens and the new earth where all the sin, all the brokenness, all the corruption, all the evil will be eradicated. And we will be there with our God and we will be his people. No more threats. No more threats. No more, no more scares of man. Are we gonna lose this thing? No, God will preserve his people. God will establish and keep his kingdom. And in this, we will know the incredible blessings of our God. Because Jesus has secured this for us. By faith in him, we receive this grace. And when we understand what's going on here in the incarnation, the fact that, that Jesus was born redeem, or under the law so that he could redeem those like us who too are under the law, and we see all that he has done, the only reasonable response is to join the the anthem of the herald angels, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your ways are not our ways. The story that you're telling, none of us could ever have whipped this thing up. The fact that God, the one who created all things, would himself enter into creation to, to fulfill the law on our behalf so, so salvation and the blessings could come to us through faith in Christ, this is absolutely astounding. In fact, it's so astounding that the only way that somebody can come to believe this is if the Spirit of God moves and regenerates a heart so that we would come to know and understand and believe. And Lord, I pray that today, for those of us who do believe that our, our faith would be strengthened and those who have not yet believed would come to believe that they would see you and your glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We would see that the life that you have for us is greater than what we could want for ourselves. And so help us as we come to the Lord's table today to forsake our sinful ways, to come back to you through the power of the Spirit and to desire to walk according to your ways. For our good and for your glory, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 